Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Kasia. I'm Dylan. Our book this week is The Word of the Speechless by Julio Ramon Ribeiro, translated from Spanish by Catherine Silver. Ribeiro is one of the masters of the short story and a major contributor to the flourishing of Latin American literature that followed the Second World War. He said about his stories, in most of them, those who are deprived of words in life find expression. The marginalized, the forgotten, those condemned to an existence without harmony and without voice. I have restored to them the breath they've been denied, and I've allowed them to modulate their own longings, outbursts, and distress. And we are joined by writer and editor Michael Barron. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hi. Uh, We just wanted to start by asking you about your relationship to the NYRB classics in general. I know you have opinions on that matter. So I would just love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, of course. Uh, I've been a longtime reader to the series. Um, I discovered it a little bit after college and when I first moved to New York. Um, There was a a series that I noticed a lot and picked up and found value in everything that they're publishing. And uh, over time, I got to know some of the people who who worked there. And, um, you know, they're they're very kind people. And uh, I think just reaffirmed my 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 sort of uh, fandom for them, but they've come out with some really amazing work. Um, you know, things that the idea of a, a, a new classic series is is exciting to me because it means that a, a rediscovered rediscovered book is placed before people as a new book. You know, it's it's. Yeah. It's not necessarily a book that you ought to have read or some sort of canonical thing that's like, you know, part of your education. It's something that deserve, that someone felt deserves second notice. And that's that's cool to me. Um, so, yeah. Nice. And uh, what made you pick today's book? So this is where I love, like I said, I love the NYRB classics. Um, I, I was on the hunt for Latin American classics and... Um, you know, they don't have that many. In fact, I think they only have like less than a dozen, I think. Um, yeah. And many of those come from, most of those come from Argentina. Uh, there's a couple Colombian writers in there, uh, Marquez being one of them. And uh, I was just looking for someone, something else from another part of, of Latin America. And this was the one book, it was Peruvian. I had not known the, the author uh, Julio Ramon Riveros and I was interested because Alejandro Zambra who's a, a, a Chilean author that I, I like a lot had written the introduction and so I picked it up and uh, read the introduction was very intrigued by the writer that he was describing and then continued with the stories and was really taken by them they were not typical of what I would consider like stereotypical Latin American literature of 20th century they weren't magical realism um, there was something else kind of uh, urban and uh, about characters on the margins, which I yeah. enjoyed. Yeah, I, I loved the introduction to this. It was a great one. And I hadn't read Zombra's books before, but I went ahead and ordered one after reading the intro. I was like, this is so great. It's better than the <laughs> usual intro that you read. Yeah, it's it's personal. You know, it's like a personal uh, yeah. appreciation for, for Ribeiro. And uh, he... This kind of goes through and is very honest about his assessments with with of his work, but you can kind of feel 
the root of it is that he's, he appreciates it and, and maybe sees like this is an underdog writer that deserves more attention. And yeah, I mean, you guys uh, also had the same same thought, same thought or feeling. Yeah, and it wasn't formulaic at all. No. It was just like it felt very authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this was the first Ribeiro you had read, is I take it? Yeah, he's not been published in English that much. Um, yeah, it doesn't look like it, tragically. And, yeah, I kind of hope that NYRB picks up some of his other work. He, I mean, one of the things that interested me uh, that Zombra had written about, and also I read an interview with Ribeiro, uh, was that he's a diarist, uh, and it seems to be what uh, part of his best work might be his in his diaries which is something that interests me. I like the diaristic work. Um, but no, for some reason, he's, he's, he's tragically under, under-translated. And so even trying to f- read about him and discover him, there was a, a sort of limit. There's a lot of potential there to kind of bring him out. And he's kind of emblematic of what the NYRB series does, which is, you know, take these, these works, lost works or untranslated works and kind of put them before a new audience and even still, you might not get the not like the knowledge. It might not come out in great celebration. It still might be a little bit mysterious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's yeah, there's so many um, things even mentioned in the intro, or if you look up on Wikipedia or whatever works that he's done, you're like, damn, I would love to read that, but it's just not right. available to me um, unless I wanted to give my go at the Spanish, <laughs> which is not up to the bar. I'm sure. So. For the listeners, a little background on the writer. Julio Ramon Ribeiro was a Peruvian writer of short stories, novels, essays, and plays. He lived most of his life in France, making brief returns to Peru. Um, He preferred urban settings for his stories, particularly Lima, uh, teeming with the poor who would move down the coast from the Andes. He chronicled their life to give them a voice. Reflected in the title of his, um, I think, four-volume collection, Palabra del Muto, which is where this far shorter collection gets its name or borrows its name. Way too short of a collection. Way too short, yeah. That was like the one note. It's like, we could have stood for more. Yeah. Um, And neither of us are really short story readers mainly, I would say. No, yeah. No, he neither am I actually. <laughs> um, but I like I like these, and there could have been more. In fact, his his complete stories that was published, I think, by Anagrama, uh, was totaled over eight hundred pages. So there's a lot of wow. stories there. He's he's okay, very sure. much, yeah. It was a form, definitely a form. I think he he took in maybe habitually, just kind of pumping out short stories. But his 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 novels have gotten prizes, and he seemed to have. It's funny, his writing career seemed to be bookended by literary prizes for novels. Uh, one that he won in like 19, 1950s when he was back in Peru briefly. Uh, and then at the end of his life, he won an award. And then days later, he died. Uh, that was in 1994. Oh, no. I would love to read one of the novels. Yeah. Uh, having like read these, I'd be super intrigued to see what he did with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know how... Uh, series kind of continues its exploration of writers but um you know it could be someone something that another publisher could take up but okay. yeah um but for this collection uh the cover art we have is a photograph of a nighttime street scene from lima in 1966 and 
I, I guess this could be seen as kind of obvious, but the anonymous figures on the street could be the forgotten people he writes about in a way. Uh, what do you think of the choice of this cover, Michael? I'm looking at it right now. I, I part of me really likes it because it kind of reminds you like the like a 1970s film, you know, uh, like yeah. the city. Uh, it's got the you know the the neon lighting. It's 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 sort of like at that time modern cars and automobiles and and the I like the red uh, lights coming out of the windows. I, are, are those signs or windows? Those are signs. Um, and so it's this portrait of a city, an urban city, and a modern urban city. And I thought that mm -hmm. uh, was exciting. The idea of the city itself is not always what Ribeiro writes about, but the people who he writes about are either in the city or they're outside the city. So it's a, it's a center with which like the, the, the solar system of his works revolves around. It's the sun, if you will. And like, you know, yeah. the stories tend to be like the, the planets or the, uh, the, the asteroid rings or whatever. And so I, I was thinking about this story. Uh, I think it's at the foot of the cliff is what it might, I think it's called. Yeah. And that, I love that story. And it's, um, and that takes place. The city is there. You never go to the city, but the character, the main characters have left the city. They've like, you know, um, settled on the beach and have, are trying to make a life there. And then the city starts to come to them, you know, it starts to, people start to build up and, uh, it, it, and eventually they, they get kicked out. Mm -hmm. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. The city spreads, so it's it's like uh, it's not it's it's a neutral thing. It's not it's not it's it it can consume you, <laughs> but it can also be at a distance. And like uh, you know, some other another story that comes to mind. You know, the meeting of creditors is a very much a city story, where um, you know the character is trying to maintain a grocery shop and has plans to expand it into a cafe, but he has a rival has moved in and has taken all his customers. And even though this, this character has borrowed money and with hopes of expanding, he's not going to be able to, to finish the renovation. And, um, it's this about, it's to me, it's a story about the difficulties of living in the city and the difficulties of trying to like earn enough money to survive. Yeah. Uh, and that's the end of the story. I don't know if spoiler alerts are allowed, but he just kind of walks and walks and walks and you assume he's just going to walk until he leaves the city. So. Yeah. I, it's like, it's a simple photo, but the way that we have projected like so much of the stories onto it, I think shows that simple is fine. Simple is good. Yeah. doesn't need to be flashy. Yeah. I don't know what else I would have picked for this, this collection. Yeah. I, I, it would be difficult to think of because otherwise you're just specifying like a, to a person. I mean, these are such a spread of stories, right? There's a spectrum right. in which they run. But um, yeah, I think there's something inviting about seeing a city, a, a photograph of a city in and its act, daily actions, uh, especially in a slightly nocturnal one like this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just like on the border. It's like there's still a little color and light in the sky. Yeah, yeah. it's a. Uh, uh, crepuscular there you go perfect word um so the stories in the book we're, we're going to get into some specific stories um a little later on but just talking about the collection as a whole they're ordered chronologically mm -hmm. as he as he wrote them um how did you see him developing as a writer as the book went on so his influences are very apparent at first i think like the first story tracks 
felt very Borgesian to me. You know, it's about mm-hmm. a person who yeah. sees the scene of his own death and it's really short and it's kind of written. I don't get a sense of his own voice. I just get a sense of like a, a well-done imitation. Um, yeah. And by and as he develops, he starts to figure out who his characters are, which are, you know, marginalized characters. And, and when he starts to write about those people, you start to get a sense of his of his own interest and his own uh, style coming out. Um, he's very good at being very, he's very observant and he's able to kind of inhabit the, the shoes of, of those people really well. Um, and as time moves on even more, he starts to become himself the character. And so there's yeah. a, it's a transition from like the third person, these portraits to his own, like self portraiture. And I think that's a, those are where his strongest stories are, is when he because he's uh, he's confessional. I don't know, maybe he was Catholic, <laughs> but uh, he <laughs> he's uh, he's very good at just kind of laying it all out and being very honest and bare with uh, with his self. Yeah, I I thought there was an interesting um, track of violence in a way between the stories where. The first couple, I think, are specifically about a murder or about a violent death. Mm-hmm. And then when we talk about the meeting of the creditors, there's sort of a switch between physical violence and more um, structural uh, violence, structural yeah, violence, societal violence, um, this humiliation, this loss more than an actual physical death. I think this goes on and on throughout the book and gets a little bit um, more developed and more nuanced in a way. Kind of how a young writer immediately wants to be like shocking and intense with it. And there's sort of a maturity that later comes out about what actually is violent. Because I think even the later stories without violence, it's still just as impactful in that way. Um, how, how did you see his writing speak to the nature of violence in your mind? There's, and there's, it's, there's a, you can come at it from a, a lot of ways. There's the direct violence of like, you know, people expecting to be stabbed. Uh, or you know, <laughs> or the, a character having like you know, you know, telling another character to to feel his his gun that he's hidden inside of his cloak, um, and then as you said with the media creditors, it come you know this the violent the sense of violence comes like it's uh, sort of the violence that someone can take away your your livelihood, not just your life, yeah. uh, and which is very scary because it's 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 horrible to live without a livelihood and still be alive and and not really have a sense of safety or what you're going to be doing and that can that that people could take that away from you is uh you know just frightening and i think he gets that really well and as he moves forward the violence starts to come to himself i think like um you know a later story for smokers only it's the violence that he does to his own body and and when he's into when he's in the hospital and he's, it's very descriptive of like what he's going through. Um, do you realize <laughs> that there's a sort of balance too? There's this, this sense of violence and the sense of uh, euphoria to, to to like be free of it, even if it's never if it's if the threat of violence doesn't actually go away. You know, it's like he's still sick, but he's gonna smoke anyway. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I thought that one was also really powerful because. Some of his middle stories, like the, 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 what's the one by the beach called again? 
at the foot of the cliffs. At the foot of the cliffs or something. Yeah. There is sort it's sort of a great tale of melodrama. There's a large action going on of this sort of city that is on their doorstep ready to destroy these their uh their houses and for smokers only it's almost a very technical story about every cigarette he is smoking <laughs> as he slowly and slowly destroys his body and it felt totemic it felt like a pinnacle of someone's career that only very few yeah, get to reach yeah, yeah. and yeah. i i do like how you describe it as like a violence of of the self in that way it's it's very true the violence continues makes it really complicated when you do it to yourself and you're simultaneously physically killing yourself and in physically killing yourself you're losing your in quote unquote passion and livelihood at the same time if you have to stop mm-hmm. yeah so it's it's a tough story it's a tough call too it's like what you know do you want the violence of uh damaging your body or do you want the violence of having the joy in your life taken away from you so that you can live mm-hmm. <laughs> But and I, I think that story was very autobiographical. Um, it's yeah. Yeah, it calls it a, a portrait of a, a smoker. But then I, in the interview that I was reading with him, it was like all those things happened. He was even in the hospital, like that. And I was oh. like, oh. <laughs> I was like, okay, wow, you must have really loved to, to smoke. A lot of a lot of the photos, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the photos you see of him, he has a cigarette in his mouth, and he was a handsome man too. Um, but mm-hmm. he, by the end of his life, he looked like he. It had taken a toll on him. Yeah, I did read that his addiction sort of caused his death. Maybe. Yeah, it, yeah, it killed him in the end. But yeah, if that's his choice. There was a, <laughs> sacrificed a lot for that story, but it is a great story. Um, yeah, <laughs> I kind of want to talk about the speechless of of the title. As we've said, these stories feature, you know, dispossessed, marginalized, depressed characters who are suffering all, all kinds of humiliations in life or in love. How did you see these stories giving voice to people denied it, uh, either like directly or indirectly? I kind of focused on the word. It's like it's not the words of the speechless; it's the word of the speechless. And mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of these stories have a moment where they say something that is like them speaking back or them protesting or them saying something that pushes back against the the forces that have made them marginalized but it's not much you know it's never they never get their comeuppance it's 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 just a word almost not not quite a plea it you know the creditor story for instance we go back to that is like you know he's just like you know you're gonna go bankrupt he's like fine i'll go bankrupt then like there's this sort of moment of like he feels like pride and and i think it's the same with like there's the story of the substitute teacher i think there's some pushback on that he's like i don't i didn't accept all this stuff you're pushing upon me but yeah i'd I'd say it's like there's one uh, his stories lead up to that one culminating moment of um of i'd say the marginalized character the ones on the on the outskirts saying something that the rest of the populace would hear or say something that the rest of the of the book would hear or to say something that makes themselves feel heard. That's probably what I want to say the most is that they actually stand up for themselves to, for themselves, even if yeah. no one else is listening. That's even a if, good even, point. I hadn't picked up on the difference between the words or the word. Yeah. Even if it's in vain. <laughs> uh-huh. But that's, that's the root of dignity, right? It's like, uh, yeah sometimes you have to feel that for yourself even if other people don't 
comprehended of, of you. Um, and so I never feel reading these stories and reading some the, about the characters, like you get those moments, you get to be in on those moments of dignity, but not very, not very many of the characters in those stories do. A lot of them are just kind of like in their own, it's almost spoken into a void, but for themselves, they are, it fulfills them. And then we watch them walk away into dust. <laughs> yeah. I should say that I got to have a very um, exciting email exchange with Catherine Silver, the translator of this book. Oh, cool. She's and great. She is awesome. You know, she mentioned how she came to this book because the Italian editor of Ribeiro came to her and wanted her to sort of translate this book. And from then on, she kind of brought it to Edwin Frank. And Edwin kind of, she was working on something else with Edwin, I think, the the editor of NYRB Classics. Mm -hmm. And he kind of took that suggestion full-hearted and made this happen. And then you brought this book from NYRB to us. And I feel like there's this interesting thing where you know, even if this book hasn't become something that is the most famous work of Latin American literature, you know, we are sharing this with each other. Like we are There's the a word of mouth thing going on, which I think is interesting with the word of the speechless title. It, yeah. it, it is mm-hmm. something that we need to bring to each other. And hopefully we're bringing to you the listener. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, the translator mentioned something about, um, because I think they did a great job with the selection, given how so many good. stories they had to choose from. It like, it it's short, you know, and it left us wanting more, which in a way is a good thing. Um, that is that is a good thing. Um, yeah. But like to to represent someone's whole career and make it also feel like not an omnibus edition, but like a collection itself with this larger context. She she said that she had put in certain stories. Um, because someone that she really cared for loved it. Like a friend of hers really loved that story. And so she put it in. So there was like certain just kind of like heartfelt choices. And then ones that were more, I think, the result of a battle between her and this Italian editor who had um, a relationship with the with the family. So there was like a mixture of uh, sentiments that led to like these stories that we have in English. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. I and I, I like that connection of like the word of the speechless and like the sort of word of mouth spread. I mean, that's what a lot of these books in the series are. It's you know, they're none of them are like you know the the, the most famous because those are the established classics, and these are not established. Um, some of them get more immediate attention than others, and this one I think is like a yeah, you, you, it's a word of mouth. You spread it around. I I, I introduced it to you. It was introduced to me. Um, and it has its fans. It has it's like a little bit of an underground fire that kind of is slowly spreading. Um, and I think that that's why it necessitates to to bring out more of his work. Um, you know, to 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 kind of keep it going and keep the fervor going. I think with literature and translation, it's not quite the same as like reviving classics because when something's not been translated before and you translate it, there's a sort of timelessness that you know feel like is even if it came out like a year ago or, or 50 years ago it's a new translation um and mm-hmm. i think you kind of have to keep 
pushing that author. You have to keep pushing more translations of the author so that build the audience builds because it's it's not it's not there uh, at all. So like there's no there's no audience for Ribeiro when there's no translation of Ribeiro. And then with the first book, you get a really small amount of people who are like, "This is great." And then with more, you get more attention, more reviews, and and the attention builds. Um, you know, I when this is unrelated, kind of, but. When I worked at New Directions, Cesar Ira was a was an author that um, kind of went through this model where it was just like portrait of, of a landscape artist, um, and then with that we followed with with a, another book and another book and like five books in, six books in, the, the attention started to swell, and then I think he now has a, mm. a, a huge audience that, at least in, tra- in the translation world, that clamor for the next book. I'm clamoring for the next book of. Yeah, no, exactly. But you you need a a publisher or somebody at that publisher that is uh, championing and is committing to the writer and is willing to invest in like waiting for that that audience to come together for it. We're <laughs> um, so it, and and as you as you said, we don't see that specifically at NYRB Classics with a ton of Latin American almost authors. none. Um, and I that's yeah. I, I don't want to say be too harsh but it's like you know tisk tisk there's some other there's writers here to develop and i think that i think there's a, a sort of responsibility when ours when they introduce a writer to kind of help them grow and throw and um mature and, and, th- and thrive to find an audience and mm-hmm. it's funny because like this the alejandro zombra introduction was not written for this english edition he wrote it in like you know several years before oh. and so there, if there's, uh, there must be other authors in Latin America who who are known here already, like Zomber was, and would, you know, also help to champion Ribeiro's work. And that's part of the process of, of of publishing works in translation is that you can get the authors from those regions who are who are well known here to champion that, because people do listen. People are like, oh, okay, well, this is this, if Zomber is yeah. giving this the the signature, then yeah, I'll check it out, which is what I did. Yeah. Sure. So speaking of that introduction by Zambra, there's a quote in there from Ribeiro himself that I think sheds some light on how he viewed his reception abroad, particularly in the West. And he says, the Peru I present is not the Peru that they imagine or depict. There are no Indians or very few. Uh, Miraculous or unusual things don't happen. Local color is absent. The Baroque or the verbal delirium is missing. Uh, so how do you think his work fits in or, or not with what foreign readers have come to expect or have been conditioned to expect from a Latin American author? It's a loaded question. Uh, it is a loaded question. There's a lot there. I mean, you have to, there is, a I think, a belief that a lot of Latin American literature in the 20th century was, first of all, magical realism and also kind of fed toward the enchantment of its region you know like trying to trying to play up the mysticism the 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 culture that is like a little more colorful and exotic to to western readers and that's not what ribeiro has given you at all um it's very much real sort of realism um and he also mentioned in i think in the interview uh that as he stayed away from Peru and from Lima, the longer he stayed in, in Paris, Lima changed for him. It became a different place. Um, 
you know, it, it, it grew a different type of vernacular as, as you know, that happens, like languages are always changing and evolving. Um, the, the political climate changed, uh, the, the economic climate changed. And I think, and look at the cover of the book, it's not anything like, in, you know, Inca's dancing around with like, you know, magic wands. It's, it's a city. <laughs> uh, and and, and um, I think that there was maybe some challenge to that. I think that that's not what people wanted in the, in the 20th century from Latin American writers. I think they maybe wanted more of like the, the Marquez's and, and, and Cortazar's and, and, and Borges. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, that's probably one of the reasons why he's not well known. And then, of course, he he has his, I'd say, friendly, sometimes not friendly rivalry with um, you know, Vargas Llosa, who mm -hmm. they were together at um, this French newspaper, and then um, they both became cultural attaches at UNESCO, and, and they were more fascinating, and they were roommates. <laughs> and That's wild. That, awesome. Yeah, That's they, were, wild. they lived in the same flat. And so what... They were not always described as like the friendliest of friends, but they definitely had like, you know, friendliness toward them, um, and also a little bit of a, um, contention. I think the Ribeiro accused Yoga Yosa of being like uh, of the far right, not of the people, and not for the people, not caring for the people, and uh, Yosa in turn accused Ribeiro of you know kind of playing to the winds of whatever would keep his diplomatic career alive. And, uh, <laughs> wow. And so, but then they, then they would be like, but he's also a good writer as well. Blah, blah, blah. And then of course, they're two of the best. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. I saw like some positive blurb from him on, on online about this book <laughs> without any of that context. So that's very yeah. interesting. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, Yosa is now a, a Nobel laureate and, Ribeiro's not and so it's and there's a lot of stories like that and, and just in all sorts of histories someone becomes the bigger person and there's always a shadow figure I think that didn't get that sort of fame or recognition um, yeah I want to talk a little bit about just like the writing itself and as he develops his voice because you mentioned you thought the, f the first story was a little like kind of a Borges imitation and there's some other influences there. Like I think Kafka is thrown around because of the nature of like the system up against the individual. But the story is like the writing doesn't feel anything like reading Kafka. Like there's this unique tone um, and like his use of detail, his structure um, is just so it's so unique. And yet it's just like very uh, it's not they're not enchanting stories, but his writing is enchanting in a way to me, even though it's mm -hmm. so bleak, the world that he's presenting. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I felt just as like, I mean, sort of swept up in a magical way, just because of how the writing was. I mean, these are not stories to be swept up in, but his writing, and then especially I think Catherine Silver's translation is awe-inspiring to read. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, how would you kind of characterize his writing? Um, he... I think part of his charm um, is that he's he's humorous. Uh, yes, he yeah. is. 
no he's fun. so funny and he finds the the, the the comedic turn in everything even when someone's absolutely down and out on themselves that he figures out ways to make people laugh and sometimes he does absurd things uh you know people jumping out of windows to retrieve a pack of cigarettes and meant to it's kind of nuts um but he's also his writing kind of reminded is there's that sort of um wryness to it that i i think is this good that kind of keeps you turning the page um he's not trying he's not trying to impress you with the prose so much as he's trying to keep you engaged in, in his in the narrative and i really appreciate mm-hmm. that and um in a way it kind of reminded me i don't know i've tried to look up if there was an, an, uh, an influence there or if he had mentioned ribeiro but a little bit of bolaño um I, I got a sense that like maybe he took from Ribeiro because you know the style is a little similar it's a little bit like it's frank it's funny um and it it kind of is addicting too because you just you get yeah. so absorbed and it's 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 porous like that you kind of just get swept in in many different ways yeah and he he's not anti-story like he I feel like he really embraces narrative Mm-hmm. in a way that like sometimes Borges doesn't like those are very conceptual cerebral driven stories in a lot of cases. And there are concepts here, like there's a snappiness and the wryness that you mentioned, but I also just felt like this um, warmth from, from him of, of a storyteller mm-hmm. bringing me into a world. And I like felt comfortable there. That's a great point. I don't know anyone else that I've read recently were, it seemed like they loved writing as much yeah. as Ribeiro did. I like, yeah, you mentioned warmth, and I think that's a, a great word to have because they are very warm stories. They're warm to the, the, even whatever the situation might be. Um, he cares for his characters. And, really and, and, that, and that, I think, shows and um, adds a little bit of intensity to the stories because you kind of you know, with like the creditor story, going back to that, you sense he's in a bad place. And at the same time, you wonder how it's going to play out because it's, he does get to say something in the end. Uh, and he, and he does kind of let his character carry on with a little bit of dignity. And, and in, in a way that's not, you talked about violence earlier, and it's not violent the way that he responds. He responds with like, you know, his, his pride intact if everything else is shattered mm-hmm. um and that and the warmth there too especially as writing about not just his characters but himself is he's never making fun of him anybody that he's writing about he's never looking down mm-hmm. on anybody he's never sneering at anybody except for you know anyone who's trying to import violence upon him or or his characters um and even when he's talking about himself i think he's he's kind to himself he's not disparaging of himself and and I appreciate that yeah Mm -hmm. when we talk about the meaning of the creditors there is I think a single emotion I want to get into some more specific stories we're going to focus on that now and with the meaning of the creditors there's a specific emotion that I think defines what that story is and it it is humiliation Mm -hmm. um how, how do you see him tackling that sensation and that emotion in this story or in others it, it, I mean, you start off with the humiliation. You start off with the, the, the buildup of the humiliation, and you wonder, like, 
there's no way this person's going to get out of this without just being ransacked by it. Um, mm -hmm. And that, I think that buildup that you, you get caught up in that so much, you don't see that there are ways to preserve somebody. Um, and I think that's what he's good at doing is, is like, I think some of his narratives are really good at finding ways out of the situation that they're in, even if they can't actually get out of them wholly. Mm -hmm. um, he has in mind, like what he, how he wants the, the story to, the story is not about the, the plight. It's about preservation. Mm. Very good point. Yeah. yeah. I loved how it's been a minute since I read that one, but you have, it starts out with an actual meeting. Most of it takes place like in the course of this meeting and you have creditor after creditor coming in and there's this just nervous anticipation that you get before you're meeting with the bureaucracy, before you're meeting with the state, the, the bank, whatever it is. The people that own you. Um, and you're just like, oh, you feel the dread of, of what's coming to him. And um, all these different creditors are just so ready to dispense with him. Um, and they, they have like these different archetypes that they're playing out. And then you have this one guy come in who is different than the rest of them. I think is he he's Japanese, Japanese and he's kind of yeah. dresses dif differently. And he, um, he punctures this uh, assault that you think is about to happen on this guy and the, everything shifts. And that kind of opens up this space for the protagonist, the main guy to wiggle out a little bit. And so it's not just this, this clear cut black and white situation. It, it unfolds in an, in an unexpected manner, which I really appreciated. Yeah. I, you know, um, and I, I love that scene when the Jap, so they're all like voting against the, how much, you know, can he prolong his debts and, you know, give me like another year. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> and they're all like, no. And the Japanese uh, creditor is like, well, actually, I, I, I side with, with, with him. I think we should give him extra time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking about that because it's like the Japanese in Peru are also maybe marginalized as well and maybe kind of, you know, sided with the underdog in that and the solidarity maybe. Maybe I'm picking up too much on that, but it feel like a little yeah. bit like, okay, yeah, I know what your situation's like and actually um, I empathize enough to side with you on that. And... <laughs> I love that. And I, you know, I think you'd have to know a little bit about Peruvian history to, to get that. Um, mm -hmm. It's one of those, those moments you might have to work a little harder for or research, but it, when you understand it, you know, and I think this is a lot of cool things about literature translation, when you get to know more of a literature or more of a region, you get to see the little slights of hand or, or, or little you know, subtle gestures toward things that uh, are really unique to that, that space and, and place. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing as you. I felt pointed that inclusion of that detail about him. An outsider like An himself. outsider, yeah, an immigrant. So then at the foot of the cliff, this story about a man um, flees the city and, and lives on this beachside home and slowly it felt like Job-like, you know, things are just being taken away from him. And then it ends on an oddly hopeful note, really, um, but I like the thing that struck me about that was how epic it was. It felt like such a large story with with so much in it about like family and and his livelihood. How did how did you see him compressing like a lot of 
material into a small space in like that story or in others? Mm. I think it goes back to like talking about the idea of the city as being like the sun and then the solar system. You kind of, you don't think about being involved in the entire universe when you're on planet earth. You just kind of appreciate being here. And so he kind of shrunk down his world enough to like comprehend it. You know, it's like, you just have the house on the beach. You have one neighbor who kind of comes mysteriously and fixes things for in exchange for fried fish. And in doing so, he kind of reverses the world so that it's not so much the world expanding, it's the, the, the outside world coming into his really small place and displacing him. Um, and he does that really well because, you know, you're, you're with him for years. You're with him with his boys. I don't know what happened to his, his mm-hmm. wife or their mother. <laughs> um, but he, he, he's living there and he's kind of, there's moments of stability where it's like, this is, this is the life that I have. And this is my neighbor. And there's like, you can keep going on that at infinitum. But as soon as, you know, as time moves on and, my, and, and the city is probably expanding above him and people start coming down and there's like tourists, he has to create like a, a, a food stand at one point. And then they build a road into, into mm-hmm. his, into his, his, uh, into a place that was remote at one point. It's no longer remote. Now it's going to be built up. I imagine, you know, like most beaches, they just, they get taken up, they swallowed by resorts. And so, uh, you just fill a space that can't contain the world that is trying to come into it. Right. It's like, it's just trying to stuff so much material into like, you know, really pointed space. And, that's why I think makes it work. I think if you had him going into the city and stuff and you had him breaching his own little world, then it would fall apart. You just try, try to keep track of too much and he wouldn't get that sense of like uh, isolation and security that comes from that. Mm-hmm. And the Silvio and Rosadal story is like kind of an interesting contrast to that one because it's also about a man living in a space and what he makes of his life in that contained space. But instead of having this family to support, he he has an absence. He has this like loneliness and despair, this gap that he's trying to fill. Yeah. Um, that You liked that one a lot. Yeah, that was maybe my favorite story. And it also felt epic in that way where, you know, it had this grandiose, it's another one about a man sort of living on the fringes and he has this sort of, smaller piece of land than most people but it's more beautiful more fertile like there's so much more that he could have there but he's a foreigner he doesn't know anyone no one really cares to know him um and then finally he sort of gets swallowed up by a family that comes to visit and then live with him Mm -hmm. and there's a big party that's sort of thrown at the end where uh the the niece who's sort of going to be the one to sort of take over this estate with um, whoever she marries. There's this beautiful point where he's dancing with her and then he has to go dance with someone else and she gets sort of picked up by other men and sort of drifts away from him. It feels like this whole world is ending for this man that, you know, had hopes and dreams. And I love, there's also a love for classical music through multiple stories. And this this is one of them where his only thing that sort of keeps him company at this house is his obsession for playing the violin. Mm-hmm. He plays with someone that owns a, that runs a church. And during the party, he realizes he's no longer 
part of this. I'm no longer welcome. And he sort of goes upstairs and plays the violin by himself. And he plays more beautifully than ever right. in his whole life for nobody. Yeah, exactly. He's he's now he's now a no one. Mm-hmm. And um, reminded me a lot of the leopard, mm. um, which I thought was interesting because the main character is Italian in that way, but sort of like this grandiose man tumbling into dust at a especially at a big party like that. But that that uh, the music is his word. Yeah, that's his that's, that's a, moment absolutely. of speech. That's we could nice. honestly go story by story and be like, this is the What's word. What's the word? What's yeah. the word? <laughs> in this one. You know, and I think with the one up the cliffs, it's sort of like his sons and his his land. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel pride when they go out and they, they pick these metal pieces out of the beach to make it more hospitable and, and beautiful for people that come by. And then that's something that, you know, kills one of his sons. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Which just sort of starts the downfall of that man. Poor old Joe. <laughs> there's, so there's, there's two thoughts there. It's like uh, one about these sort of, I think for Silvio and El Rosen, Rosadal, and it reminded me also of the story of Barbara, which is about like this Polish woman that he meets and carries around a letter that he yeah. he can't get translated. <laughs> but I love that. <laughs> that was a really good one. Um, and... I was reading, you know, an, an, an interview with him about that story, Barbara, and you know, like having that he did go to to Poland and and did meet people, and but that the two worlds, you know, the West and then the East, you had these minglings at times, and then they would go away again. But he could go into East Berlin. He is a Latin American. He wasn't, you know, part of the United States or anything, and that kind of these promises of what could have been are really interesting to me because I. You don't get a sense of like his love lives too much, uh, except for you know maybe Barbara's a very specific one. But like in there's times I think where the the woman is absent or uh, or it just briefly mentioned like oh in the time by the way I got married and had a kid I think is one aside in a star. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. In first moment, yeah. It seems like he's often in pursuit of some fragment of a some remnant of yeah. a woman. Um, a glimpse of her, but like yeah. there's never a real relationship. No, I mean, that's much. we can only gather that from these stories that are chosen, but I, yeah, you're sure, these, course, it's a fragmentary, yeah. it's like a, it's a romantic ideal of something heartfelt, but not so much a person to person thing rather than uh, an mm-hmm. object or something that uh, fulfills that space. Um, and I think also with, with the music stories, like. The violin story reminded me of like a, actually reminded me of a Calvin and Hobbes strip, um, (laughs) (laughs) where I think he like has to memorize like some lines for a play and he gets stuck in his onion suit and he is the only things that really worked on to like memorize and he can't go he can't go on stage because like, the zipper gets stuck, but he like shouts his lines in the middle of the, of the hallway and no one's around to hear him actually do it. <laughs> and so uh, I just, we're going to, we'll, we'll we're going to find that and put it on Twitter. Yeah. yeah we'll put it on Twitter when the episode comes um, And then the other story, uh, the, the music maestro Berenson and, and yours truly, I feel like it was, it was a, you know, it's a story about this this maestro, this conductor who uh, you know conducts the symphony. He's, he's, he brings it to Lima, and it's it's, it's gorgeous, and the and the narrator's enraptured. 
and then has an embarrassing moment with him in a bar where they get in a cab together and he, he vomits and he gets kicked out by the maestro. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then years later, you know, the, the, he sees the maestro and the maestro uh, is performing, but in a very lynching way, he's performing to a tape. He's conducting a cassette, I think, of Beethoven. And he gets in mm-hmm. the narrator, is, it's his turn to get disgusted. Um, and that's kind of how the story ends. And I kind of felt that that was a sort of self-portraiture of like him uh, leaving Lima for so long and then trying to write about Peru until the point where he's just basically writing about something that's that's already pre- a pre-existing idea of Peru without actually list, uh, writing about what it actually is at the, um, or how, how it's evolved with him being away for so long. He was in Paris for decades. Yeah. I also kind of thought of this, this is, I mean, this is a great ending um, for the collection. I think it really makes a summation of his arc as a writer. And I think it's interesting because we talk about how most of these stories sort of end on a disappointment and a humiliation and um, we don't or, really... or it should, but the character preserves some little piece of them and that, yeah. that means everything. <laughs> and we don't really know where the characters will go after that. A lot of them don't die. They're all going to have to live with this disappointment. Mm-hmm. And this character does, but I think you could also see uh, Maestro Berenson as a sort of, Rubiero character in that way as well as he sort of gets into scandal. It's implied that he's um, promiscuous uh, in a way that is not accepted. Socially accepted. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he gets kicked out of the the symphony and you can almost see that point would be sort of the ending of another story that Rubiero would have written. And um, this is the continuation that we usually don't get to see about where they have to go with their humiliation. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be an interest. That's sort of an interesting um, difference compared to some of the other stories. Because yeah, he's now playing to a beer hall on a cassette tape. It's and <laughs> it's like Tar. It's actually quite a lot like Tar. It's exactly <laughs> like Tar. Oh. Thank you so much. I was going to make that reference. <laughs> I kind of wondered, exactly- reading it, I was like, did they take this story? Is this the inspiration for Tar? Because it's just such, it's it, it just tracks along with it so closely. Yeah, everything that Maestro <laughs> Verison does, that, that's what happens exactly yeah. with Tar. Um, except except the, here, here you have a narrator who's observing Berenson, and then Tar, it's just, you just have Tar. Um, and so... <laughs> yeah. Reading that and then watching, having seen the film, it's kind of it's quite satisfying when the, when scenes like that line up and seeing that also like there's no original ideas or all ideas that have come before. God, I don't know if they they read this story or if it's just something where you know yeah. it's a beautiful idea and multiple great artists sort of come to it. Yeah, way. yeah. I, I mentioned Lynch only because it reminded me of that scene. I think Mulholland Drive of like you know. I, I know Banda that it's only a tape. Yeah. But I had, I did try to read into this story a little bit. As I got more into like in the stories, I kind of tried to read more into the biography of Ribeiro and you know how I think maybe the, what I don't know. I don't think he was never disgraced, but I think that like the, the Yosa comment of him kind of playing toward whatever was advantageous, advantageous politically uh, kind of hit, hit mm. hurt his reputation. But these stories are not, apolitical they're very much 
you know, siding with the people and have that sort of, a sort of spirit of like, you know, representing people who are pushed out by, by the ruling class and people who are pushed out by like, you know, national expansion and pride and people who don't get to, to benefit from the successes that some people do in a country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it, it's even though there is this mission in a way to this collection and to this whole concept of the, the Palabra del Muto, it's not campaigning writing and that it feels like colorless no. in the way that things often do, or it doesn't feel like political writing. It, it doesn't feel like it's forcing the message. The message just sort of comes to you given what the characters experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's impressive. Some writers are really mm -hmm. good at doing that. I think of like, you know, some of his like more like-minded writers might be like the Russian writer, uh, Andrei Platonov. Uh, who is also very good at like setting stories of, you know, where someone comes in from like the center of, of say like Moscow, which is the heart of the USSR and goes to the rural parts of like one of the stands and meets people who are living on the margins and it changes their perception of like who these people are and, and also kind of creates a realistic situation where there would be no way otherwise to feel differently if you read them uh, or to feel indifferent, I should say, if you read them. So you could not read these stories and not get a sense of his, of Ribeiro's politics or like the way that he might've actually seen, you know, his countrymen or, you know, people like him. And I also think he was also marginalized. I think that's the bigger thing here is that, he didn't he achieved some fame in peru for a while and then he didn't um and then bigger writers like yosa took over and i think he kind of got not forgotten obviously he's writing they they're putting out his complete stories in spanish but not big enough to to kind of warrant worldwide appreciation or international appreciation and so like this 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 book feels like a mm -hmm. gesture toward the possibility of that chance of growing and, and reclaiming i think some of the earlier respect and prestige that he had. And on the point of autobiography for smokers only. We got to end. I think <laughs> like that is an all time story to me. Um, it seems like it could be like widely anthologized. <laughs> um, it was probably my favorite in the collection. I don't know how you felt about it. What, what made that story work for you and stand out for you? It's it's an interesting way into a, 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 a like a self portrait or like a, a, a memorial to oneself is like do do this one action this one habit that they have, and it it's it's the characters are the cigarettes because he lists all the the brands you know the Paul Malls and Lucky Strikes yeah and the colors of the packaging mm -hmm. yeah and what they taste like and you know what their reception is like is this is this a grand cigarette or is this like a dirty cigarette like you know <laughs> and it kind of fault tracks along with his life's developments you know he's like he really was a newspaper recycle pickup person I forget the actual term for it where he'd go to house to house oh, and pick really? up the newspapers and you just kind of his mark his life is marked by these the different use of cigarettes and also what cigarettes are doing for him and then you kind of rooting for him he like quits well he has to quit because he's he's sick uh and he sees these workers and who are smoking and it gives it's the irony of the story is that he chooses to 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 enjoy life rather than to to survive it <laughs> and I think that's like the best word of the speechless is like, you know, I'm just going to, I'm here and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, enjoy what I have. And I think that's a beautiful summation of the story. 
And I think this maybe has the most comedic moment to me in it where he starts putting like things into his pocket oh, yeah. <laughs> to start seem like he can weigh more and they oh, can release yeah. him. And then he asks for his wife to bring him some of his nicer cutlery because like you know, the, the hospital cutlery just isn't. <laughs> I can't eat my food. I can't eat my food with it. It falls apart and he just starts stuffing his pockets with spoons yeah. and stuff. And they're like, oh, she weighs so much, but you don't. Look at it. Don't look any better, but I guess we'll yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you know he that was great. I thought it was great. Yeah, and I also love like he's so good with details. Then there's that, or like hiding the cigarette, hiding the cigarettes, you know, uh, in the in the sand. It's so, like, and then they they get you know, and I think Zambra talks about that as like, which sound absurd to non-smokers. But if you are a smoker, it's totally reasonable that you would try to hide a pack <laughs> if you're trying to like to let, let anyone else know that you were you got back into smoking. Um, and some of the moment when like the the groundskeeper like displaces his little marker of where he, his cigarettes are hidden, you can't find them. You know, I, I having smoked <laughs> felt for him. I was like, oh man, that sucks. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the de- <laughs> the details of like the, the 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 cutlery and the silverware. It's also kind of ingenious. Like that was so clever. I was like. Oh yeah, it's a marvel. Um, It's I think it's worth picking up for that story alone. Yeah, the collection is, and it's so weird to feel a rush for this like success of this guy where you realize no, you're oh yeah, he's just going to kill himself for him to die of lung cancer. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but he gets to live life, and at the very end, like he gets out and he gets to celebrate with a cigarette at this like you know like banquet table and stuff, and it's simultaneously the most like oh my god he really is just gonna die and then like yes yeah. <laughs> you lived your life he and he did he lived his life uh, he, he just and and he did die of lung cancer um but that story is also really mm-hmm. it just takes some interesting turns like he meets that little uh peruvian guy who ends up being like a, a, a criminal on the lamb or something and they get into like a bar fight international like <laughs> yeah like carlos the jackal sort of yeah, yeah. exactly and it, it, it just, it just don't see that coming he's like you know and then no. uh you know they he, there's these these people following him because they're they're they want to get into like a fight and then he's like go on ahead i'll take care of this and he's like this small man and there's like these three <laughs> other larger guys following oh, him yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like how'd you do that and then again we're going back to the earlier conversation of violence he's like touch here and it's like this, 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 this gun and you know that story takes so many interesting turns but that guy also provided him with cigarettes that he loved uh it was like you know a revelation to hang out with him because he could he had all this access to all this this good good smokes <laughs> and that's like how they met yeah. And as you mentioned before, things that might appear as like important in one's life, like getting married or having children. He's like, well, look, it, you know, by the way, it, I'd gotten married and had a couple kids during this time. But <laughs> what really matters is that I found this new random cigarette. Let me describe a pack of Marlboro <laughs> to you in as many details yeah, as possible. Yeah. It's like a romantic quest for the cigarette specifically, mm-hmm. not, not any other form of nicotine, just the cigarette. <laughs> it's fascinating uh, it's good and he it's funny i i, I he is a, a very 20th century writer to me and i think like the concern with cigarettes i think is a very 20th century one because it's part of the romantic ideal of the writer with the cigarette sure. and but there's also something about it that i don't know I, his stories kind of feel like we'd mentioned earlier about cinema of the 70s like I can, I got that sense of like Technicolor stories, stories that like you know ha- had yeah. that, that thrum, 
of like a life just before the life that we live in now, the, the super modern, the internet or anything like this, this is still like a, yeah. <laughs> a life of it's between it's like the world is modern is still modernizing it's still figuring itself after the post-war and that's you know it's that's exciting to me because it, it 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 can be anything there's no overarching concern like a war or technology or anything it's just living inside of a, of a, a modern space um, where you can just be concerned mm -hmm. for cigarettes <laughs> yeah and it makes those stories more timeless to us now i think because there's no technology to date it yeah mm -hmm. you know like a story about loneliness now or about smoking now and there'd be like 20 different flavors of jewel that would have gone in and out by the time <laughs> that the story exactly. actually yeah. put out <laughs> yeah i think that's what i was getting at is that there's no more timeless it's hard to be timeless now uh because we now live in a yeah. world that is excel like always accelerating and you know i i remember editing something once where the person had been like you know i just got this new iphone 3 and i was like we, we need to take the the three out of there because by the time this gets published it's gonna be like the five or something we need to add a one to that three so it's a 13. <laughs> yeah. and we've already passed that i mean there's nothing i don't uh -huh. i would be it's hard pressed i think it's a nice appreciation for what timeless literature could be because i don't think it's it's easy to capture anymore I, I think it's possible, um, but it's it's hard harder and harder to live in a world that you you can avoid technology. And I think when I was younger and it was like the, in the aughts, people were concerned about putting technology in their stories because it would it would date it, um, or it felt a little awkward. You know, like it was still being accepted and it still yeah. had this sort of science fictiony type of feel toward it. And now it's like you know, you you are on lots of stories contain like people's Instagrams and our social media or other things that I don't know what's going to yeah. exist, how it's going to exist in a few years. Um, it's of it's, but if we're in of, of a time rather than any sense of timelessness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For better or worse, <laughs> that is where we are. Yeah. Um, well, just to kind of round out the discussion here, we've talked a little bit about the fact that he wrote these novels and some of them were awarded prizes but on the whole he's considered this master of the short story that's what he's known for why do you see him thriving in this form and what do you think he contributed to that tradition of the short story his stories have a sort of familiarity about them like they're really easy to kind of like mm -hmm. um, yeah there's no no really not much work you have to do to like get into them and I, they're like photographs or of a time or a little you know like a as we said, cinema earlier, there. Um, I think what makes them so successful is that they are, they capture these things with the sort of like immediate intimacy, you know. And so, rather than he doesn't get, he's never fussy. He's never trying to overly paint something. It's like things feel like broadly sketched. Um, at the same time, like every stroke he does is is very detail oriented. Mm -hmm. And as you you know, you guys have never read him before, uh, and he's like it's his first time in translation. But you didn't need to be from any place in the in the world to really get it. Those stories could could take place no. anywhere, and I think they have a universal quality to them as as well. You know, like you said, you want to maybe put the smoke you know, for smokers only in an anthology. You could because it kind of 
has a broad application. <laughs> um, and I think that's something I appreciate about his, I appreciate about coming on to him uh, or coming to discover him. And also like, you know, Zombra had, Zombra says in his introduction, he's like one, like Latin America's greatest diarist. And I think if you're constantly like jotting down each day, you get really good at just like writing out how the structure of a day and how it plays out and how and that motion of time works and how who was involved mm -hmm. with it and like what characters and what those little micro stories might be because they are micro stories sometimes they're like you know they're yeah. not stories that are going to change anyone the world but they are stories that for the character has a large impact and that's more where we all live in the micro story yeah, yeah. that's our <laughs> that's our heroic yeah moment. unless you go on a protest march or something but yeah, exactly. Is there anything else we didn't get to that you want to mention about him or the stories? He has a very interesting life trajectory where he kind of, one thing I kind of picked up on was that he, you know, his father died uh, when he was a, like a teenager and I think mm -hmm. when he's young, but, and then the family had like some financial issues, but he was still good enough writer to get the, into school and and went to Paris uh, on a on a journalism grant and then that's how he got back to or he went to Madrid first on a journalism grant then re went back to Peru then went back to France and so the writing always kind of carried him but he was he was kind of vag not vagabondish but he traveled around trying to find like jobs and and kept getting lucky he kind of stumbled into some really fortunate positions the the, the you know, for the press in, in Paris and the attaché. Right. But when he left UNESCO and he still lived in Paris, he had, he was not working. He was not doing anything to, to make money. He was just there. And like, you know, whatever income his books pulled, which I don't imagine was, was very much, was what he lived on. Um, and he had, you know, he had a place that it was nice because when he had that job, but he kind of goes around full circle. You know, he starts from Peru. He ends up back in Peru in the last like six months of his life. And so you get the full circuit of a man who comes up, rises up to, to his to his apogee, and then starts to slowly come back down quietly. I mean, he, in Peru, he won an award, but I think in the rest of the world, he, it just, he kind of like went away. Mm. Like, like in the story, walked out of the city. Right, yeah, just yeah. disappeared into the yeah, street. I think so. Yeah. Well, hopefully with this episode, we can retrieve him, spot him in a blurry picture. Call him back. Something <laughs> from this Lima. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it's, it's a book that kind of, it's the last lot book from Latin America, I think, that came out, and it came out in 2019 from MYRB, but it oh, is okay. easy to, I'm glad we're talking about this book. I think it, it deserved more than a, a passing glance, so... Thank you for, for doing, for having me on to talk about it. Of course. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. Are there any books that you would, off the top of your head, Latin American books that you would like quickly nominate to be NYRB classics? Oh, yeah. Um, there was one, but I think Knopf is going to publish it. It's, it's called the, the Devil to Pay in the Backlands. It's a Brazilian novel um, that is, I think considered the Ulysses of Brazil or Latin America. And oh, cool. I've read some, there's an earlier translation that people think is not very good, but from what I read of it, it's, uh, it is actually like that. Uh, and it's, it's, it, this seems like astounding and fantastic, but um, 
there is a book by uh, a novel by a Salvadoran writer, Roque Dalton. Um, it's titled like uh, "Propósito Poeta que era yo," poor, poor little poet that I that I um, that I am. But yeah. uh, that I think is being picked up by uh, Seven Stories, um, and that book is incredible. It has a structure that Bologna definitely pulls from to write to, to have written like Savage Detectives in two six six. Um, and that book was written in the 1960s and 70s. Mm-hmm. So those, those, I, I, I think that uh, Devil to Pay in the Backlands was also written in that time. So they're the, the two that I would recommend are, have already been picked up in the last few years. <laughs> um, but That's a good that, sign, though. That's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah, it means that people can go find yeah, themselves. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot more out there. And, you know, it just takes the effort that say NYRB has put into like finding German classics or finding Russian classics to, to really go and finding classics of Latin America and especially ones, if it's a new classic, then it, you know, it's, it's might not be someone that we've heard of and that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a matter of finding the right champion for them and the right translator. I think Catherine Silver was, a, was the right translator for this project. Okay. Yeah. And I know she was working on something else for them that didn't, come to fruition but didn't seem like we that. hope that whatever she she does in the future will yeah yeah because this was great yeah this is great well that's our show thank you for listening to unburied books our theme music as always is composed by john hookstra join us again in two weeks when we have a new episode until then you can follow us on twitter and instagram at unburied books or send us an email unburiedbooks at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you thanks bye Peace.